recorded at Get a Grip Studios in Toronto, Canada. Get a Grip Management production and in association with the Get a Grip on Lighting podcast. Presented by the National Association of Innovative Lighting Distributors, the National Lighting Bureau, the Illuminating Engineering Society, and of course, the International Dark Sky Association. This is Starving for Darkness. Hang on a second here, folks. That's right. Hang on a second. Michael Colligan, co-host of Starving for Darkness here. Just to tell you real quick before we get into the conversation, which is super important for you to hear, that you need to go to keystonetech.com. That's K-E-Y-S-T-O-N-E-T-E-C-H.com, especially if you're a contractor or a distributor, Greg Eric. That's right. And they're coming out with a new exterior line of product, or they have come out with it, and they're going to continue to add to it, and they're dedicated to making dark sky friendly lighting uh, and potentially dark sky compliant as we go. For now, though, they do have a dark sky full cutoff wall pack, a variety of wattages, Kelvin temperatures, and a precision crafted optical lens that's ideal for increased fixture spacing and uniformity. So less lighting fixtures needed because it, it can provide more light out of the one fixture. So check that out. Go to keystonetech.com. That's right. Hold on. Here comes Starving for Darkness. But before, K-E-Y-S-T-O-N-E-T-E-C-H.com. Hello, listeners and darkness lovers. Welcome to another episode of Starving for Darkness. My name is Jane Slade, along here with my co-host, Michael Colligan. And we're so excited to bring Peter Vito back on the show today. We were fascinated by the last hour of conversation. It totally flew by. And I feel like we only got to scratch the surface. So we decided to continue the conversation in two parts. For listeners who are just tuning in, Peter Vito holds three degrees in psychology, including a PhD with a large focus on digital eye strain. And last time we spoke, we established that the study of lighting and Peter's field of work, that for most people, these two areas of research are operating in silos and that there's not enough cross-pollination that's happening between lighting research and psychological research. So I want to dig into that today, but before we do that, I also wanted to update you on a forthcoming project. Uh, in a recent episode with wonderful Andy Krejci, who's an astronomer, um, an educator, a dark sky advocate, uh, he asked me and Mike about uh, our work, and it came out that one of my dreams is actually to have a dark sky night. And so just by asking that question, it reali I realized that I had to kind of get the word out and recently posted on my Instagram, Anatomy of Night, that on the solstice of this year, we're going to have a dark sky night between the hours of 7 to 10 p.m. We will advocate to turn the lights out so that we can get the stars back then and there and create this awareness of what everyone is missing. So if you have any questions about that, let me know, reach out to the show, and we'd love to help. We need those advocates to help Jane with this. And, you know, I really think when I, when Jane told me the idea, I thought it was a wonderful idea, but you know, Jane, 
I do think it's a long-term project. And uh, I know everybody's anxious to hear our next conversation with Peter, but I think if we start working towards this and building some advocacy in the various areas, um, which is something I'm working on and I'll tell people about on another show if it comes up and it comes in hot, I'll tell them some of the plans we have for that. But if we could build momentum towards that to give people back three, even just three hours, and if we get lucky and it's a really clear night, man, I'm sure it will solidify the movement. So good on you, Jane. And I'm here. I got your back. My lights will be out. <laughs> yeah. Well, the truth is we need all the help we can get. And mm -hmm. Mike, I know you're working a lot on the municipal end and sort of demystifying how people can get access to the right people to make the right mm -hmm. moves. And that's just going to be absolutely integral. So with that, we want to get touch into the research that's absolutely needed, which is psychology in lighting. Peter, thank you so much for coming on the show. And as you know, we start every show with the same request and your your dark sky story blew me away. I thought about it for days after. So listeners, I'm not going to spoil it. Head over to episode one with Peter Vito to hear his dark sky story. It's fabulous. But I want to hear your next. You actually said you have a lot. So what's your newest dark sky <laughs> but you, story? But you, you know, you know what though? His, it wasn't a dark, his was a darkness story. That's true. Yeah. It was a darkness story. It was a darkness story, not a dark sky story. So yeah, yours was super unique. Yeah. So first of all, thank you so much for having me again. And uh, that, that story was interesting for me. And particularly, I wanted to get your feedback, which first sounded strange to me, but actually it resonates very much with how I felt back then. Hmm. And therefore... Hmm as I also thought about this for a couple of days, and I think I kind of accept what both of you said, surprisingly, uh, quite much in unison. And um, other stories, I, I have a very short one, which is short because I forgot the context. Um, and it's similar to, to, to that of many others, I think, when one day I wasn't even outside for stargazing specifically, but I just looked up and saw the Milky Way. And it was a surprise, even though, of course, I've seen it longer ago, but so much longer ago that somehow the experience fades or, well, probably I'm not old enough. And that long ago was when I was a child. And so uh, since then, I, I looked at it very differently. And it was just a surprising experience which I suspect happened in Canada, but I'm not sure. I forgot the context, but it was approximately at that time. Um, and, and there's something really qualitatively different in, in seeing some structure there, because otherwise you would think that there are random dots, right? And once there is that structure, it brings up new thoughts about uh, something beyond random. Well, I recently heard about stories how when there's a power outage, people have called 911 saying, what is that milky mass in the sky? Because people had not seen it and it was alarming. And I think it is jarring to see this white mass in the sky after your eyes have adjusted if you don't know what it is. So it's, I think, uh, an education we're all missing whereas our ancestors would have been very normalized to seeing such a mass in the sky. So we kind of only touched on one of your main areas of focus last time, which is digital eye strain. 
Can you talk about what's happening for people in this age of screens uh, in our eyes and in our bodies? Yes, uh, at least I can talk about the basics. I'm not sure how much in detail I can go into what I'm doing. Um, but as for the sources of, of why we have digital eye strain, there are many of them. And of course, near work is one of those. And that is really hard to eliminate unless you have your own football stadium with a huge screen on the opposite end. Uh, but most people who are highly sensitive to digital eye strain, they can still read a book and have no problems. So obviously, near work is, while it is part of this problem, it is not the whole problem. And then another factor with computer displays can be resolution and contrast. But today, most LCD screens are high resolution enough and high contrast enough so that this should not be a problem. And also you have adjustability. So if it's too high for you or too low, you can change that, right? And so nearly all of the rest comes from the backlight source. And that has to do with many issues which are shared with the problems we have in general lighting. Namely, first, first of all, the unnatural spectral composition of these light sources. Uh, second of all, flicker, which is, of course, particularly problematic when we are reading, and that's what we mostly do on a screen. And the third could also belong to the first one, uh, which is the lack of circadian cues. Now, software solutions try to uh, mimic natural circadian dynamics, but they have inherent limitations and even some drawbacks, which actually come from the first factor, the spectral uh, composition of the light source. And so, so the this drawbacks, affects... The drawbacks, the drawbacks are that are, were... Yeah. The drawbacks have to do uh, partially with flicker. So if you reduce the intensity because of pulse width modulation, most monitors will flicker more. So actually, and, and most people, of course, don't know which one they are more sensitive to. So oftentimes mm -hmm. people play around with the settings to get rid of the discomfort. And by, by doing one setting, they have more of one type of discomfort, let's say a flicker, but in an opposite type of setting, they would have more type of discomfort from uh, too much contrast or too blue of, of light, etc. So the two somewhat go against each other. And this is one drawback of only software-based solutions. So, okay, so what's the problem there? Software solutions use the LCD to filter the backlight source. And, and the backlight source is inherently blue. So first of all, the limitation is that you can only filter out so much with the LCD itself. That's why even if you present, let's say, orange looking picture on the screen, when you sit in a dark room, when people look at you from the outside or look at your window from the outside of the house, that's going to look blue because that blue, primarily blue backlight is leaking everywhere. So, so this is one limitation, which you can overcome with using filter glasses instead, obviously. Uh, but this other limitation is that if you reduce the intensity of the screen, for most screens, it's going to flicker more because of pulse width modulation is what is used to remain efficient with the LED backlight. And therefore, you increase your chances of experiencing discomfort or eye strain due to flicker by doing that. And the third limitation, which generally applies to all of these software-based solutions, is that 
if you get, if you truly get rid of the blue component, then all you have left is the phosphor converted broad range of orange in the middle. Hmm. And then the, the color problems become much more prominent. So not having deep red in any of modern computer displays, nearly any of them, is not so much of a problem when you have the blue there, because it color perception operates with color contrast, of course, and this very narrow definition of RGB, which is used on the internet, is sufficient enough so that we can see red colors. Now, if you put some truly deep red next to it, then it, it's going to be more apparent that that the red, the reddest red that your LCD can do is just pretty shallow relative to a deep red, truly deep red color. But when you get rid of the blue, everything just turns into this bland orange and all the color resolution really disappears, uh, which would not be the case if you truly have, let's say, full spectrum light, but eliminate only the blue. That would be a different case. And of course, filter glasses try to operate differently in this, in that they try to eliminate the quote-unquote bad blue. So the phototox phototoxic effects of blue light peak around 435 nanometers. So this is what, what these filter glasses target. And of course, there's a lot of talk about circadian cues, etc. that can the attempt is to leave that part in, which peaks at 480 nanometers. And of course, these are just the peaks. Both of these functions have a bell-shaped curve around them, so they largely overlap. And of course, in any natural lighting conditions, they would highly correlate. But for these specific applications, they can be uh, separated. And this is how filter glasses for computer use try to specifically target the phototoxic range of blue light and not so much touch the rest, including mm. shorter and longer wavelengths and thereby disturbing colors a little less. But these are just mitigation efforts, really. So, th well, so these are the limitations that I'm in. Dr. Warren, do you know, are you familiar with Dr. Arnold Wilkins' work? Sure, sure, yeah, yeah. Okay, so back in the 90s, he was putting on, I guess, rose-colored glasses. <laughs> um, yes on people suffering from ADHD, dyslexia, and these other type of symptoms. And he found that literally, then this is the problems with fluorescent lighting, okay, that he improved their ability to read. Like that's, yes. that's astounding actually. Yeah, yeah. Okay, that one of the problems that some children might have learning to read would be the lighting in, in the classroom. Yes. Okay, like yeah, if you... Yeah. You, like that's astounding when you when you when you come to that conclusion, and then you hear about classrooms with more natural light, kids performing seventeen percent better, twenty percent better, right? And so this becomes like what? That's those are massive numbers when you're looking at large studies, twenty percent, seventeen percent. That's huge. Um, and this scotopic sensitivity syndrome. That's another one of these these things that came up with it. I think what happened was the dawning of the LED and personal device era those things happened at the same time okay so you know concurrently we are changing all our lights to led and we're now adopting these you know personal assistants that we all look at all day and i think that 
the the impact of this light on our whatever you want to call it ability to read maybe or on attention deficit disorder um, depression anxiety sleep problems and so on is way underestimated because it's we had to relearn it because we 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 decided to embark on completely new technology at the same time both of which that impacts these systems in humans okay at identical times and it's almost like the lighting industry had to relearn everything it learned with fluorescent um, with the flicker issue with the color temperature issues and all these things and you have this other contributing factor that children and adult uh, particularly adults but children are spending hours and hours not playing a video game on a TV which is 10 feet away but staring at a device that can be less than a foot or foot and a half away from their eyes and I think we as a as a lighting industry and psychologists and and um, people that study disease have way underestimated these impacts on some of the things that are going on what are your thoughts on that Peter yeah, so first of all, you, you mentioned these school performance and all these problems from fluorescent lighting first mm -hmm. or, or when this line of research really started mm -hmm. with Professor Wilkins. And with computer displays, this, is, this can only be worse in the sense that this is the only lighting application where the intended use is to stare directly at the light source. So basically, the most important parts of your retina are always and completely uh, doused in the light which comes from the computer screens. Even if you have daylight in the room, most of the light that falls on your macula will be from the computer display. Uh, and so, so with reading, etc., when, when you, when you, let's say, imagine a classroom, in most cases there is fluorescent lighting, but there are some windows, right? So the two are mixed. When it comes to an LED backlit computer display, of course, the profile of the flicker is worse in that it is more square. So that's already a difference, which makes it worse. And nearly all of the light that you see at all whatsoever comes from that screen. Um, so, so yeah, that is worse. And uh, what did you say after? But we that? don't know. <laughs> but we we have we just all we know is there seems like there's this. Oh, uh, you know, this is pretty obviously bad. But you know, Doctor Wilkins is is emeritus. He's retired. He's not doing his, his, his research anymore. I'm not sure if he's doing new research now, but yeah. when I spoke to him a couple of years ago, he's retired. And it seems like yeah. the new scientists are not looking at that research because now it's a screen and an LED rather than a fluorescent. But I think a lot of the same principles apply. The flicker issue, the color temperature issue, and so on. Yes, and definitely Professor Wilkins keeps talking about this. Okay, good. I always laugh when I think of that in my eyes, he is the most patient man on earth, really, that I've known. He keeps going to the lighting conferences and to the more basic science conferences. He's speaking super eloquently. Please, anyone interested in this topic, you also had him on the show. He has many spe speeches mm. all over the internet, so, so it's really worth listening to him. And then, of course, all the lighting people are there. They listen, they nod, they clap, and every other, everybody agrees that the final conclusion is that flicker is bad. I mean, you can go into the details from many aspects. You can look at the phase-logged neural response. You can look at reading performance. You can look at artifacts like uh, phantom arrays in traffic and how they are bad for spatial perception and attention and, and all kinds of bad effects 
in traffic, which of course are not about health, but about safety directly from the dangers in traffic. And everybody concludes that of course, Flickr is always bad. That's always the bottom line. And then everything goes on the same. And as things got better with fluorescence, with LEDs, the same issue started over again. So it's not a lack of knowledge and it's not a lack of new research. The, the knowledge is mm -hmm. plenty enough to, to know that it's bad. Explain for the listeners what a light artifact is, actually. That is a term I for, I've forgotten since I spoke to Dr. Wilkins two or three, three or four years ago, and he blew open the flicker issue in the LED business. He blew that wide open, I think yes. in 2017. And, you yes. know, that was a m massive problem and it's still a problem, a huge problem. But explain what a light ar artifact is for people listening to this. So the, f the surprising thing is exactly that it's still a problem because it wouldn't be that hard to solve. So, so what is relevant here is that, hmm, how should I, where should I start? Uh, when a light flickers and your eyes move quickly, mm -hmm. then the image is not going to be a continuous smear, but it's rather going to be a repetition of the same image, right? So can mm -hmm. you imagine that you, the, the clearest example is in traffic because there the contrast is really high and light sources are very small. So you're following a car uh, with its taillights being tiny LEDs which do flicker, or you see daytime running lights, they also often flicker. And you make a saccade, a quick eye movement, which you're not conscious of, but when there's a lot of uh, demand perceptually, we make them more. And traffic is exactly the situation where we make the most saccades, and also the longer these saccades are, the faster they get. So, and in traffic, we, we have to span the whole field of view, so we make a larger number and longer saccades, which also translates to faster saccades. So what happens is that your eyes paced through the location of that lamp and very quickly, during which time the lamp of course flickers. And so the resulting percept is going to be a repetition of the same image dot, 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 across your field of view. And this, well, this is completely unnatural. This is difficult to suppress because naturally during the saccade, you suppress what you see, but that is based on that everything should be one continuous smear. And in this case, it's not that. So your whole perceptual system is confused, but it's not only confused in that it doesn't know that this is something to suppress. It's also confused in which dot is which or where is actually the real target. And so when this happens, the saccadic eye movement, this very quick, often called ballistic eye movement, which is pre-planned and then just executed very, very quickly, it should land on the target of the saccade, so where it wants to land. But when there is flicker around, it's going to be imprecise. On average, saccades will be shorter, but they will always be more imprecise. And so a new saccade will have to be made to the real target location. Etc. And this adds perceptual strain to everything you do in the presence of flicker. And in traffic, this is particularly problematic because of this light uh, mm -hmm. artifact called the phantom array. It's also problematic in reading for, for a slightly different reason. But yeah, you can go on if you. No, so I just want to say, Mark Baker from Softlights, if you're listening to this, this is yes. what is hurting you. 
This is like when people talk about the LED lights, it's the color temperature or whatever. And when I drive, I feel sick or it's causing my, you know, seizures or really hot. That is what you're, that is what's causing it. That what you just described. Michael, I'm no? not sure. I agree. I agree. It might be what's causing it, okay. it, but there might be other factors. And, and this is the same with digital live stream until somebody plays around with each of these factors independently, you will not know you will likely not know which one is causing your symptoms. Some Come on. The, ep the seizures, the epileptic seizures that are known by Flickr, that's exactly what's causing it, is it not? Well, yes, yes and no. So in traffic, this is less of a problem because for epileptic seizures, the problem started with CRT monitors, particularly TVs when people sat very close. And it has to be a low frequency and it has to cover the whole field of view. In traffic, this is a very different problem. And of course, for some epileptic, epileptic people, it might be a problem. I'm not saying it's not. But there are so many other problems in traffic when it comes to, let's say, symptoms of people who are highly sensitive. Just by them saying that they feel discomfort, it might be because of luminance. It, it might be because of flicker. And, 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 and both have this basic psychological measure of discomfort. So if you only measure discomfort, let's say for discomfort glare, you have the, the Bower scale, right? All the scale asks is how uncomfortable is this light stimulus to you? Right. But, so but, but, but here's my... you cannot separate the two effects. You don't right. Know but nobody, is. nobody is benign to this. This is everybody has to tolerate this and some people can't tolerate it as well as other people. Is that correct? That's right. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Very much. Very but much. there's so That's many factors. That... Sorry, sorry. Yeah, there's so many factors that go into it because yeah, last time we talked about how LEDs not being full spectrum are separating out bandwidths of light. And whereas this used to be this beautiful elixir of different sources of electromagnetic energy where you would have infrared from the fire and then the blue light. So I, while I agree, Mike, I think Flickr is way underrated. <laughs> and I think it's probably a significant factor for a lot of people who are experiencing, especially the highly sensitive person who are experiencing strain around light sources. But I don't think that it's the only factor. And I think the fact that we've sort of uh, pulled and teased parts of the spectrum out, and then we Flickr it. And I wanted to ask Peter, the word that I would use is strobe in what you're calling this phantom array. Um, is that a word that you think is appropriate? Strobing? It is. The strobe yes, effect? Yes, yes. There are many yeah. words for this. Uh, some call it the beads effect, and there are all kinds of terminology. Yes. Some people can't see it. I recently went home to visit uh, my parents and my mom had this, you know, LED bulb in some fixture. And I was like waving my hand saying, don't you see that? because it was a terrible flicker. And she was like, I don't know what you're talking about. So there's degrees of sensitivity that I think people don't realize there are out there. Um, and something you said before, Peter, is I think a, a big part of this episode for me, which is um, you said it wouldn't be that hard to solve. And I think that awareness is the biggest barrier to light pollution because people just don't know the impact of light upon all living things. And so I think that's a big barrier just in general, but something that we touched upon last time was academia. 
and how you know there's there's limitations in academia that prevent good research from coming out that there was a lot of controversy about talking about the importance of infrared and also that we're already experiencing right here on this show which is why we wanted to have you back but that your research hasn't made its way to the lighting field so can you talk about academia for a second and i just want to put a pin in that i think we have to come back to sleep and how important sleep is but let's talk about academia and the the problems that you see that are limiting um the right information from getting out to the right people oh i'm really really too small to even tackle this problem i don't know i can only speak maybe from my perspective that i started this whole journey because i'm just infinitely curious and research seemed to be the best play place to be in and while you are a graduate student or whatever and i was also super lucky to have supervisors who, who did all the academic stuff basically in order to allow the rest of the lab to focus on the research and at some point i reached a level in my career where this was no longer that simple or where expectations started to change on on, on how i relate to the university or academia, etc., and all these, um, yeah, more organizational tasks and so on, and that mm. does not only not resonate with me, but it's increasingly against what I resonate with, and so that's that's why I left. Um, if there would be some Academia 2.0 out, I would be very happy to join, and I certainly miss research even in this past. Um, one year or so since this has been like that. Of course, there are one can do research outside of universities, but generally the system is very similar. Um, and of course, if there is one lab where where the people right there are are really close to what one individual wants, then that is a different question. And and from a more broad perspective than this. I really don't feel qualified to tackle this question. So basically, I don't know. Well, what I would say is, I, I mean, it's not the first time I've heard that academia is struggling in a lot of ways because of the high tuition, um, the need to publish, uh, the, the certain ways that are really locked in that are very limiting. And what I find really interesting is that here we are on this podcast, bringing these two silos together, um, and that the age of the internet has really um, taken the, the price tag off of education, that it doesn't have to be branded to disseminate information or to expose gaps and holes in our areas of research and knowledge. And so I think that the age of the internet, I mean, you see people making their own online courses and selling them these days. I know that uh, we are, Mike, you're involved in uh, an, an education uh, course and track for people. So um, I do a ton of education in my work. So I, I think we've, we're all educators here on this podcast. And so I think that academia, while it, it does have its strengths, isn't necessarily the only avenue to information anymore. And I think that's fantastic. So let's get into sleep because we wanted to get into this at the end of the last episode. But let's just get really simple and then we can dig in. But what's happening with light and sleep? that you find fascinating lately? Um, I, there's a lot happening which people talk a lot about, also on your show. 
So I wouldn't touch too much on that with circadian effects and blue light and, and how to induce better sleep through more activation during the day with blue light, right? So that's an important thing, but there's so much talk on it that I don't think I could add too much to it. Uh, what is interesting though, and to also relate to, to Dark Sky's questions, is the psychological importance of, of sleep, starting with how, how crucial it is. I mean, it's a more basic need than eating. Most people could go longer without eating than without sleeping, right? And, and in, in psychology, in psychotherapy, there is this overarching idea which you can also connect to shamanic practices as you mentioned michael before or, or basically anything where the same idea comes up that you have this waking state of consciousness in which you usually live your life during the day but many of your issues are on a level let's call it unconscious which in this state of mind you cannot access right nevertheless these contents are causing you problems this is much of what psychotherapy is about, or many types of psychotherapy is about, to try to somehow get to these contents and bring them back to your waking state of consciousness. Now, uh, I believe this is happening to all of us in a very nicely individualized therapeutic manner while we sleep. But most people just fall asleep. It's a quick transition everything blacks out, you wake up, you go about your life and you don't remember anything, right? And that is because the transition is very quick and not really conscious. And the more conscious you are of this transition, which one can practice through all kinds of exercises, the more you will remember. And this bridging works in both ways. So if you do some exercises, most people after a couple of weeks can remember five, six, seven, or even more dreams every single night. And we have good reasons to suspect that these dreams are always there or in same amounts. They, they are there. Most people just don't remember them, right? And so through the exercises, what, what you practice is to stay conscious or, or at least be more slow and deliberate in how you transition from one mental state to the other. And this works both ways because as you practice this, you can bring more of your waking conscious control into your dreams and that's how people become lucid in their dreams, right? And so Laberge, the biggest name in, in modern Western sleep dream research, says that dreaming consciousness is waking consciousness without the sensory input and vice versa. Um, I'm not sure I fully agree with that, but it's a very interesting starting point because it shows how in many of these therapeutic or shamanic, etc., practices, the tools which are used to make this bridging between two different states of consciousness more deliberate are tools which use very low intensity stimulation. Because that's what allows you to, to kind of use as a bridge, as a, as, a, as a ladder, through which you can always climb back to one state of consciousness, but you can, but, but it follows you through to the other one. So, okay, just one more thing to mention here before I go full circle. Sorry if it seems a little uh, all over the this place. There are these flotation tanks and de sensory deprivation mm -hmm. tanks, which became fashionable a decade ago or, or well, more, but very fashionable a decade ago. And they are indeed good because they 
get rid of nearly every sensory stimulation in an instant or very quickly. And that's why they facilitate going through this transitioning quickly. But uh, if you give cues of, of some low intensity stimulation, then the transition can be slowed down. And when dreaming, this can be lights. People use face masks, which have little lights in it, which sometimes flash. And that brings you slightly back to, let's say, your, your waking consciousness, but not too much. It's just minimal so that you can remain in control of the transition. And once this transition becomes more controlled, you will start to remember more, you will have more control on the other side, etc. And in therapy, you will bring those unconscious contents into your conscious or waking everyday life, and that's where the healing happens. Now, to connect this to, to the starry skies, which I, what I find really interesting, and maybe it's, maybe it's just me making it up, I have definitely not seen any research on this, but if you would want to make the most minimalistic whole field visual stimulation, that would be the starry sky because starlight is diffraction limited, so it, it literally cannot get any smaller. And, uh, and it is also very faint. So it's basically the most minimal visual stimulus that you can provide. Uh, which therefore will induce already a, a change in the state of consciousness that you have, kind of priming you for sleep. But it is still there. So before you close your eyes, you still have some sort of stimulation which keeps you conscious enough or in control enough. That is so fascinating. And I actually study a meditation technique called Silva. And the whole premise is that um, one of the first exercises that you're taken through is to close your eyes and count to 20. And when you do that, you actually enter into a different brain state, as in your brain is operating at a slower frequency. And so the whole premise of this meditation technique is to problem solve from within these slower brain states. So getting in from lucid sleeping, lucid dreaming, being really, really slow. And um, there's the dream state, which is even slower. And then moving up and, and really harnessing these brain states for problem solving and deeper access to your intuition. So I think it's fascinating. And you're right that there is sort of a, a ride you're on where you're toggling between having the the the, the ability to harness your awareness from being slightly awake, but also slowing down enough to get the benefit. So I think it's very interesting how you're linking that to also a view of the stars, because I think what's also interesting about that when you're underneath the dark sky is that your, your pupils are completely open. And what is the impact that that has on your thinking? when your pupils are at full ocular opening. And we don't know that. We don't, we have no idea what happens when, and, and this is something I don't know, but is your, is your pupil relaxed when it's closed or is it relaxed when it's open? Or is it always sort of opening? Because if it's fully relaxed when it's open, that's a really interesting idea to think that your eyes are suddenly fully relaxed under this giant open star or open sky. And what is that doing to the mechanisms of your thoughts? So obviously these are a ton of hypothetical questions, but I feel like 
we are not accessing these brain states ever because we're in constant full brightness, which is, I think, the point we're all circling in on, that if you're never near a fireside, and I was just reading about how people used to scry and fire, so they would try and like see forms and meditate and see what came. And so there's fire scrying. We never do any type of um, ritual with fire anymore. And we're never under the dark sky. We're just in constant, mediocre, uncircadian stimulating light levels. And, and I think this has a really big impact on the quality of our thoughts. So I think it's absolutely fascinating how you're saying that by a lack of, of curation of the light levels in our lives, Peter, we are not accessing the night sky or anything close to how that would impact our thinking. It's brilliant. Yeah, and it's a good point with the pupil. Most of the research on the pupil, of course, has been from the other direction. So how can we, how can we see on the pupil what's happening wherever, in emotionally, in, in the state of relaxation, in cognitive effort, but basically everything affects the pupil, which is really interesting because, of course, the first function of the pupil that everybody thinks of is physical. It is restricting the light which goes into the eye and also affecting acuity slightly. But this effect is really small because otherwise, obviously, we would, we would not have this flexibility to allow for all kinds of cognitive and emotional and other processes to, to also affect the state of the pupil. And to connect this a little bit to lighting, I think that those who are always yeah, so also those who, who sleep in, in a not completely dark uh, room, let's say. Of course, we know that it affects sleep because even through your eyelids, a little bit of light getting in will already trigger this wakefulness state to some degree, even if you're asleep. And that will, uh, nearly sure about that, that that will also affect the pupil. And what I am sure about because I just not long ago read this study again, is that after exposure to deep red light, the pupil actually dilates relative to darkness. So basically you can prep your sleep and your relaxation with red light. And so, so these the all- fire. Yes, and yes. And so these all go together with what you, Jane, just said uh, about, about looking at stars and sleep and how, how these are linked. So, so yeah, I think, I think there is some research behind this, which we, based on which we can contemplate, but I haven't seen any research which would tackle this from the opposite direction to, to try to, yeah, to, to try What's to the benefit operate of... from the pupil upward. Yeah. I, can I, so I have so many directions. Like I just took so much notes in that. <laughs> I, 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 but I want to ask you something just about the pupil because we're on that topic right now. So somebody's um, high on drugs. Their pupils are huge. What's happening with that? And how can we learn from that to understand what's going on on the opposite side? You know what? You know, when someone's high on cocaine or whatever. The, the cops are like, yep, this guy's high. You look at his pupils are huge, right? Yeah. What's going on there? And what can we learn from that? Or I'm just off topic with that. I think you're off topic in that I don't, uh, this is more of a medical question. I mean, to, in terms of chemistry and whatnot, which I cannot answer. And I think the, 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 the physical reasons for why the pupil dilates are pretty chemical and medical in this sense, and, and certainly well understood, just not by me. Mm. And they are also very 
deterministic, right? You take certain drugs and everybody will have huge pupils. What is interesting from my perspective, from the vision science perspective, is how little this in and of itself would distort perception. So even when light levels are fairly bright, these people can function visually pretty normally, right? So this again just shows what I alluded to. The question I'm asking is why? That's I think that I think there's a signal there. Well, I have that... a spiritual answer for you. Okay. But we we basically are at an all-time use of drugs in our humanity, and we're also at an all-time low access to the night sky. So if being underneath the night sky also is a situation that brings your pupils to full ocular opening. And that is a form of escape, a natural form of escape that is also hmm. deeply meditative. You know, to think that people don't have access to this, but then they're taking drugs to get the same physical response in their bodies. I mean, that's my theory. I, that's a I, good hypothesis. That's a good yeah. starting space, you know. But so, can I just take it and I want to ask another question, Jane, if I can? Just slide sure. in here. Okay, so <laughs> I'm a, I like... I don't know if you've ever heard of the the um, Reiki. I think I pronounced it correctly. Yeah. Reiki. Yeah, Reiki. Jane and Peter. You know, Reiki is Peter. So yes. I, yes, yeah, I, I was given ten free Reiki sessions. Long story. I'm not going to get into it. And uh, but somehow I ended up. Um, guy didn't. The guy didn't pay for some services, and he said you can use my wife's Reiki sessions instead. <laughs> so I went to Reiki. Okay, but I ended up loving it. And I actually learned to lucid dream in Reiki and to control that consciousness state. Okay, so that quiet zone, I had a, um, something over my eyes that completely blacked everything out. And then the quietness of it. Now, I don't know if there's any energy transfer or not, or, you know, that kind of thing. I don't know how that works. But I know that something's happening when I work with this specific woman. And I'm not endorsing Reiki for anyone else but myself with uh, Alex Duders. If, you know, if she's listening to this, she likes the show, actually. Um, so, but I was able to discover that space that you're talking about, that inter, inter consciousness space between the, the sleep and, and the, and the consciousness. And, um, I don't know if it's inducing the dream state or if it's the capturing the sensations without the physical side of it, but you can really do a lot with your mind if you're able to get to that space. Um, whether that's in yoga, I've heard people talking to me about, they get it in Kundalini yoga, they get somewhere like that, where they're able to, um, you know, actually control the sensations they're feeling or not control, but able to trigger. Sometimes it's very deep sadness. Like sometimes you, 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 maybe you're not controlling it, but you're not awake and you're not asleep, but you're able to experience things you wouldn't otherwise experience. And I don't know how to describe it, but I, I, you know, is it something to do with the, the, the sensory deprivation, the lack of light entering the pupil or a much lower light level entering the pupil? Is it specifically to do with that or is it something different or is it a combination of things? Well, when it comes to Reiki, I certainly have no idea, <laughs> unfortunately. Not specifically with Reiki. I'm talking about that, inter okay. uh, that intermediate state between sleeping where you're not conscious at yes. all or lucid dreaming or whatever, you know, um, inducing consciousness in the dream state or whatever it is that you want to call it. Um, is there something to do with light deprivation or darkness that's important to that? that you yes, know I, think this, I think this, this analogy or, or what Laberge said about the dream state being the same as the waking state, but without sensory input, is that your mind is similar, is just following a different path 
one being along the physical stimuli. And once you take that away, then you are free to take different other paths. And that's why the transition is going to be easier if you have, if you have something in between, if you have minimal stimulus, but also more freedom to, to go explore in other realms. So it's not so like you're, every, you're not losing, you're losing the sensory, the actual touch, the five senses or whatever, but you're not losing the sensations. The emotional ride exactly. is still there, exactly. 100%. Yes. yes. Okay, good. Yes. That's what I was yeah, asking. Exactly. Because, okay. Yes, because that's your perception. So yes. It's not your senses, it's your perception. And that, that remains. It just goes to be based on some other information, whoever knows what. Where does it and come I think from? That, yeah, well, I don't know. But I think this happens also to those who don't remember anything, right? So when you sleep, you do that. You are, you have some kind of mental state. That's somewhere. a speculation, you Peter. Don't, you don't. That's a speculation. No, no the, the good evidence to support this is that once you even just start, well, one side of the evidence is that once you even just start to practice these techniques, then you will remember. And once you remember, you have at least the most direct source of evidence, which is your own experience. And the second piece of evidence here is, of course, a lot of sleep research in what's happening in terms of what EEG waves, etc., are associated with different states of sleep. And most people go through these states of sleep, meaning most likely also they dream and there are other signs of dreaming, but then once they wake up, they don't remember it. Right. So, so they do something. They just don't know afterwards. So, you know, I, we can be secular or non-secular, but the fact remains that there are um, a lot of belief systems that think that dreaming brings access to otherworldly elements. So it could be um, spirits, uh, messages, etc. Um, so there is one tribe in South America that actually communicates through dreams. Um, that was as one of the, the, the premises to the Silva meditation system. So, um, you know, your question, where does it come from, Mike? I mean, that's like the question, what is life? What is existence? Um, I know I've had some pretty spectacular dreams that don't have explanation that gave me information I had no access to. Um, so... I can't explain that either, um, but I think that what Peter, what you're trying to say is that we are not really um, in practice of our dream states and trying to gain the benefit of the access, whether you're thinking of it as a meditative standpoint, you can be non-secular about it, or if you think that that gives you access to even more to another world, um, we're just not even really getting access to that because we have our bright phones in our faces when we go to bed. And then we are we get up with the day and it's bright once again. So we're never getting access we're never giving the brain a chance to have access to those brain states. And so, and then because we're never even getting a chance then we don't get the practice of kind of weaving in between those states with some awareness to them. A beautiful quote. And sorry yes. that I'm just all over the place all the, all the time, but Jane, you summed it up, summed it up very nicely. And of course, I, I don't know where that information comes from, but uh, fr from this more yeah, practical point of view. Indeed, if the transition is abrupt and then transitioning back is abrupt again, 
then then you don't get to practice the transition you don't you don't get to deliberately slow it down and to bring those con contents to the rest of your life uh, and this has a lot to do with lighting and of course now lighting products which try to imitate sunrise and sunset etc they may make sense partially because of this as well and of course yeah not not using your computer or phone a couple of hours before sleep that's a general advice which very few people can stick with because yeah we just do it but based on the um, whole IPRGC physiology narrative right we know that for several hours before sleep you shouldn't do that because otherwise it will diminish your sleep quality so the connections there are absolutely obvious, yes. I, I actually remember um, when I was in graduate school, my, my other yellow cat at the time, King Louie, not Ferdinand, um, he loved to wake me up in the night. And this time I, he woke me up in the middle of a dream with my, my grandfather who had passed on, giving me advice that I got to take with me. And he, he told me, a true friend wishes you well. And he said that never let anyone else define you because they'll always define you as less than themselves. So it was really valuable advice, whether you want to believe it came from him or not. Um, I was so thankful. And I actually told my atheist mother the dream and I didn't get a lot of time with him. Um, but because I, he, he developed Alzheimer's when I was seven, so I didn't get any adult time with him and I didn't really know the DNA of his like, adult brain and thoughts. And when I told my atheist mother, she was like, I have chills. So there was something resonant about it, whether you want to say that it was him or just my impression of him. But I'm very thankful for that dream because it was information that my waking state was not going to give me access to. So I think there's a, a gold mine of other brain states that we're not accessing in the days of light pollution. So I often, we're, we're coming up on the end of the hour and I, I mean, I'm so excited we had this second episode because where we've gone, I, you know, Peter, as someone who is a scientific researcher, your openness to the other side, to, to what can't be proven, is so wonderful to see and i i trust the rigor of your work i think that you're absolutely a scientist but i think that rigor is seldom paired with someone who's open to the the more spiritual side of the discussion so mike do you want to jump in yeah so um my brief time in university which i didn't graduate but i studied english latin classical mythology class, classical studies okay and if you read anything about that, dreams are everywhere. The recounting of dreams in the Bible, the recounting of dreams in ancient literature, the meaning of dreams, um, First Nations people talk about dreams, the importance of them and their meaning. And it's only in the modern era that all of a sudden we think dreams are meaningless. Um, no, nah, it's just too, nah, it's just nothing. I, I think that is really immature. That's the only way I can describe it. To you cannot read literature and not see how powerful dreams affected our ancestors and the decisions they make. And empires rose and fell on the on dreams. Um, so, what are your thoughts on the importance of dreams in terms of 
how people should live their lives or how should they see dreams. I know Jordan Peterson it puts as a as a um, clinical psychologist puts a lot of importance on dreams. What's your take on it? Do you think that it's something that people should take seriously? Is it something people should study more? What do you think? Very much, yes. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And first, with Jane, I here have to disagree slightly. And, and first of all, you ask so many questions from so many different fields. I definitely do not claim to know anything about these. So my research and my actual field is in perception. And that's mm. where I can speak with some moderate degree of confidence. But all the rest was just uh, really... Uh, I think just like it's a, a podcast. You're allowed but, to have your personal then, opinion. Yeah, yeah. yeah, sure. Yeah, you 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 always yeah. differentiate from your what what's your your uh, specialty in academia and what is your opinion. That's great. So yeah, but I want to know your opinion. If we ever talk yeah. in the silos that we own, then there's never an opportunity for cross pollination. And I hear your humility, Peter, that you have your area, but you're willing to step out humbly, and. Mm -hmm offer an opinion on things that can't necessarily be proven. And I think that's so important to establish gaps of knowledge and to lean into intuition. And you don't often see that combination. So yeah, well, I actually, thank, yeah. Thank you so much. Oh, um, there so, are again many questions and I haven't answered Michael's question either, but please oh, yeah. go on, sorry. No, 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 <laughs> no you, no, no, you answer on. Michael's question. Okay, yeah, so first, first, I mean, nothing is proven anywhere ever. So, so this is more about the scientific mindset that you just try to go with the best evidence that you have and try to, it's all about learning and I'm obsessed with learning. So, so the method of science is basically, you can, in my eyes, that's the best method that we have to anything where logics still holds. Now, when it comes to dreams and stuff like that, maybe there are dimensions where logics do not hold any longer. And of course, some aspects of maybe therapy connecting to psychology would also touch on that, but that's more clinical work. That's not so much scientific research. And of course, arts and other disciplines would be maybe better tools to approach these weird or, or seemingly not logical questions than the method of science. But other than that, you can just stay open about whatever, right? And, and, and try to collect the best data that you have. And, uh, and, and relating to, to the question about dreams, I mean, absolutely, yes, we, we should pay much more attention. And this is, there is a lot of research on this and the, the conclusions are, I think, unquestionable that there's so much to gain from sleeping more consciously, to working with dreams, to basically using it as your free therapy, because it's completely individualized. And wherever that information comes from, or whatever you believe of where those pieces of information come from, they are the most useful to everyone individually. So thank you so much. This has been an absolutely fascinating podcast. I did not know that we were gonna talk about dreams so much. Uh, amazing. Um, and so, you know, you had said last time that the field of lighting is very focused on low level perception or the retina and that, you know, ideally the field of lighting would incorporate more uh, attention to perception in general, um, to our high level perception. 
So my final question for you is, what does the future of lighting look like when we incorporate high-level perception? Uh, we touched briefly on this last time, and I think there is plenty of evidence to incorporate here. So it doesn't even necessarily need to call for new research. It would definitely call for new lines of communication between fields of research, let's say from, from, from the fields of my past, uh, object perception and uh, saliency based on objects and how that drives eye movements and how that would relate to how we should light things. Unfortunately, today we didn't have time for that. This is a whole new big field and I think there's a lot of great evidence-based knowledge there which is not utilized simply in lighting but mm -hmm. eventually to put it into general terms of course one part of it is what you talk about a lot preserving darkness as much as possible and another actually slightly related part is that whatever is lit should be lit in a way so that it resembles its daytime appearance as much as possible in terms of low contrast and the shape and other important properties of objects which we are looking for. Because we are not looking for glare bombs, as you say, we're not looking for huge contrast here and there and nothing in the rest of the scene. Uh, and yeah, so, from this point on, it's pretty simple, isn't it? Yeah, so when we <laughs> Maybe have- Maybe not the like... execution. I'm, I mean, no, I'm not saying that lighting design as an execution is simple, but the principle here to me seems quite simple. So when we have a street light down lighting upon a bicycle, it distorts the image of the bicycle for the memory within our visual system. And that's really the the one the the way that we're illuminating the planet is with down lights everywhere. So it's it's an interesting idea to propose that we change that up. And I just wanted to kind of circle back on that thought because I think that's the thread that the lighting industry needs to pick up from this conversation. So thank you so much. Mike, do you have any final comments? You know, I just, uh, Peter, you're, I think that the three of us, we have like, a, uh, we always seem to find a way to, to you know, get, go down rabbit holes and come up with... Uh, <laughs> Uh, all manner of weird stuff, but you know what? It it all relates to this idea of entering the darkness and like embracing darkness as a human need and a need that uh, something our planet needs as a form of rest and res restoration and and rela relaxation and everything. You know, so I really encourage you. And you know, one of the things Jane started off telling you what she's working on. I'm going to be giving all you listeners an opportunity to really join this movement. It's a little secret right now, but give me a couple months and uh, I'll be talking. To to you, all you people out there, wherever you are, you'll have an opportunity to join and starve with us at Starving for Darkness. There's my little piece to throw in at the end, Jane. Just a little <laughs> teaser. It's coming out. I don't know exactly when. Everything takes way longer than I think and costs twice as much, but that's how it goes. So I'm going to be coming up with something for you guys soon. Yeah. Well, thank you for joining us, listeners. Peter, you've been an amazing guest. We went places I was not expecting. Thank you so much for sharing your expertise and your willingness to step into the unknown with us. Oh, thank you so much. This was wonderful discussing these things with you. Thank you, Peter. Psst. Psst. Hey, don't go anywhere yet because we have some instructions for you. It's Michael and Greg from Get a Grip on Lighting. Yeah, we do the ads for Starving for Darkness. You got to go to keystonetech.com.
That's K-E-Y-S-T-O-N-E-T-E-C-H.com. Late made easy, Greg. You've been able to rattle that off real well. Uh, there's a new line of exterior fixtures from Keystone that they have available, and they're going to continue to expand on it. And they're doing things right. And one of those that they're doing right is in their wall packs. They're making them full cutoff. That's going to eliminate undesirable sky glow and glare. And that's what we all want. It looks nice. It fits the profile of a lot of your old nasty fixtures and has multiple wattages and kelvins that can cover you there. Get rid of those old nasties. Go to keystonetech.com. That's K-E-Y-S-T-O-N-E-T-E-C-H.com. Thanks for listening to Starving for Darkness. Bye for now.